Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explore, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. Recently, the Webb Dean Stevens Museum in Wethersfield commissioned an archaeological survey of their grounds in preparation for building their new on-site education center. In the process, they discovered what may be one of the most important finds in early New England history, a site archaeologist Ross Harper thinks might be Connecticut's Jamestown. In this episode, we join a group of Wethersfield residents at the museum for a presentation by the archaeological team on what they've found so far. It's a surface-to-pay-dirt exploration of Connecticut's past, coming up on this episode of Grading the Nutmeg. I'm, uh, I'm Charles Lyle, the executive director, and our last speakers are uh, the members of the Public Archaeology Team Incorporated, who actually worked for, uh, for the Webb Dean Stevens Museum before I became director 11 years ago, and have done the master plan and several surveys on the site, and we've been lucky enough to have them back to do a lot of the preliminary requirements before we build our new building tonight. I'm not going to talk about what they're going to talk about because I think it's 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 a, it's a really rich presentation with some exciting finds that uh, I think are going to help us in many ways to add a whole new layer of interpretation to the Webb Dean Stevens Museum. And our speakers tonight are Sarah Sportman, who is one of the senior archaeologists of the past, Ross Harper, who is the senior historic archaeologist. I do want to thank you for coming and for the Webb Dean Stevens to hosting. They've been wonderful, wonderful clients. So, next slide. So Charles gave a little bit of information in terms of why are we doing archaeology here in the first place? And it's because the new proposed addition, that funding is backed by state bond, so that required archaeological survey to ensure that significant buried resources are not harmed. There's been a long history of avocational archaeology at Webb Dean Stevens, but in 1998, as you can see in the top slide, PAST was hired to investigate the location of the handicap access ramp at the north end of the property, and we found 17 century deposits in that testing, which really indicated occupation of the... In 2017, we returned and we explored the most intriguing deposits in the phase two testing, in which we excavated one by one meter units that you see in red on the screen. This testing opened up a world of significant archeological information. Currently, as you probably saw when you drove in, and next spring, we are removing in what we call phase three excavations, significant site areas. So now I'm going to let Ross and Sarah tell you about the good stuff. And we're going to talk about what we found from the most recent to the oldest finds. As part of our phase one archaeological survey, we conducted a ground penetrating radar survey of the property. And as May said, we're going to take you back in time from the most recent deposits back to the earliest 17th century materials that we found. Um, we found several soil anomalies in the ground penetrating radar survey, and two of them were investigated in the phase two. Those two turned out to be late period features, one of which is a dry well, which you can see here to the left. 
And the other one is a probable privy feature, which you can see here to the right. Those were both probably built in the late 19th century and probably closed around the 1920s. Both contained a wealth of materials related to daily life at the Dean House. Both were associated with the Dean House um, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about these before we move back through the 18th and 17th century materials. Ehart Fenn was um, a member of the U.S. House of Representatives. This time, in the late 19th, early 20th century, the house, the Dean House, was occupied by Margaret Clark and Edward Hart Fenn. Edward Hart Fenn inherited the Dean House from his mother in 1899. Um, and he and his wife lived there until both of them uh, eventually passed away. The organization at the time of her death in 1958, which led to it eventually becoming a museum. One of the most interesting things that came out of these early um, 20th, a myriad of other artifacts from household materials such as ceramics and animal bones, glass, architectural materials, but the bottles really stuck out because it was an amazing collection. Many of them were very, very complete. And they provide a fascinating window into some of the bottles that we found are um, Usuline white mineral oil. It was a Russian white mineral oil. We found at least three of those bottles. Those were actually used as a laxative. Um, we found around 15 Vaseline jars, including this one here, which had a lid still on it and Vaseline preserved inside. Um, there's soda and beer bottles. One was from Hartford, one was from Pennsylvania. Um, this little bottle here is a proprietary medicine bottle, I mean, excuse me, a prescription medicine bottle from a, a pharmacy in Hartford. And this white jar is Musterol, which was sort of functions like fixed vapor rub, and it was marketed as um, an alternative to old-fashioned mustard plaster, so it was good for when people had colds and con uh, chest congestion. And this little brown bottle here was Formament tablets. We found a couple of those. Um, Wolfing's Formament was kind of a disgusting concoction made of formaldehyde and milk sugar. They were supposed to taste very, very pleasant. Um, and here's an ad for them right here. Recommended for adults, children, everyone. Um, and our favorite is this portion of a Glover's Imperial Mange Medicine bottle, which was a concoction that was advertised as being useful for man or beast. <laughs> so it really gives you kind of a little bit of an insight into medical practices at this time. And one thing that I found particularly interesting about this deposit was that most of these bottles and jars, particularly the medicines, um, were all available in the late 19-teens, early 1920s. And several of these, um, including the formament, the musterol, and the Vaseline, were actually marketed um, in kind of response to the influenza outbreak of 1918. Um, several public health announcements suggested mixing Vaseline with camphor and sticking it up your nostrils if you were going to go out in public as a way to kill germs and prevent catching the flu. Um, the musterol would be used to abate the symptoms of the flu, and the formament, actually this ad, is particularly targeted to that time period. It's a little bit hard to read, but it says, why catch their influenza? Attack germs before they attack you. And it basically suggests sucking on formament tablets whenever you're in a situation where you might be infected by people with the flu, because it was supposed to purify your throat and kill the germs. So while we can't conclusively attribute all these medicines to the influenza outbreak, it certainly had a huge impact in Connecticut and in Wethersfield, so it's an interesting possible storyline for this deposit. 
back in time, we wanted to spend just a couple of minutes addressing the Revolutionary War period. It is certainly the period of significance for this museum. And um, to date, we have numerous artifacts that date to this period, but we have yet to find um, any features like the privy or the dry well that would date to the Revolutionary War period. Um, and part of the reason for that might be just changing ways that people dealt with their homes and their landscapes between the 18th and the 20th centuries. Um, we have, oh, I'm sorry. We have numerous materials that date to the 1760s, 1770s, 1780s, but most of those were recovered from mixed fill deposits, meaning that these artifacts were jumbled up with both earlier and later materials. Um, none of them were tight, dated contexts like that privy where we had all that stuff that was dumped in at one time. And part of the reason for that may just be landscaping practices changed during this time period. The way people thought about their, their home space and their properties and their yards changed during this period. Um, you have a situation where particularly among the upper classes, people are thinking about their yards and their yard spaces less as functional workspaces and more as kind of aesthetic leisure areas. So you see the developments of you know lawns and formal gardens and things like that. Whereas in the past, um, the area surrounding your house would have been for dirty work. You know, doing your laundry, dumping out dirty water from the kitchen, um, cleaning butchered animals, that sort of thing. And you see a shift in that over time. So people start landscaping the heck out of their properties, leveling things, knocking down old outbuildings, you know, filling in depressions, things like that, trying to make nice level lawn surfaces. And that has had an impact on the archaeological record. Um, also have renovations and modernization over time as new owners move into houses and change things, um, build additions, knock things down, you know, get rid of the little chicken coop in the backyard, that sort of thing. So part of the reason why we haven't come to this yet might be related to the fact that people have kind of obliterated evidence of some of these deposits due to just the natural course of living on these properties for a couple of hundred years. Um, that's not to say that we don't hold out hope. We've certainly been finding lots of good materials that date to that period. And next spring, when we do the phase three archaeological work in the backyard, we're hoping to uncover some deposits that date to the Revolutionary War period. I'm going to continue our tra time travel back in time um, to the earlier part of the 18th century. I'm going to direct you. I don't know if you noticed when you drove in tonight, um, if you came in the driveway along the side of the Dean House, if you saw kind of a white tent set up next to the house. That's the location of, of where we've been digging in this most recent phase of our archaeological investigation. Um, so this is it right here on the map. Shoot, sorry. Right here, down a lot. This is the driveway, and this is where we've been digging here. Um, and we discovered some really, really exciting archaeological deposits in this area with some fantastically well-preserved early to mid-18th century materials and um, soils. This picture here shows our, one of our excavation units, and it highlights the soil stratigraphy in this area. And by stratigraphy, I mean the layers of soil that you can see. Um, in the photograph, and I've got them labeled here, and we're going to be talking a little bit more about these as we continue to go back through time. As we opened up the ground here, 
we discovered that we have this beautiful, almost layer cake looking stratigraphy in this area. And based on the artifacts that we found in each of these layers, can tell you that the upper level here is related to modern landscaping. It is a mix of materials from the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries, all jumbled together, and it probably happened fairly recently. The layer below that, which is sort of a reddish color, a reddish gravelly layer, um, is largely composed of Arcos gravel, which is the red sandstone that's native to Connecticut. And we have um, a good sense that this layer was probably deposited when they built the Arcos patio that's right next to the Dean House right there. Um, it looks like they may have used some of this gravel to kind of build up and level off the ground surface. Um, and there's also big chunks of stone there that look very similar to the stones that are in the patio. Below that, though, is where things start to get really interesting. This layer of yellowish brown soil here, which I have labeled as cellar ejecta, if you can see that. We believe that this soil, which is actually glacial, glacially deposited sea horizon soil, so the lowest levels of the soil, if you were to dig down in your backyard through the topsoil and then down below it, you often see like kind of a yellowy brown kind of soil. And if you keep going farther and farther, you get this really kind of nice sandy layer in this area. And that's what this is. So this soil is not where it belongs. It has been you know, dug up from a very deep level and redeposited on top of the ground surface in this area. And we believe that this may actually be related to the construction of the Dean House when they dug out the cellar for it, or possibly um, the well that's there. We don't know exactly the date of that well, but you would have a similar situation if you dug a well, a good deep one. This layer of ejecta has sealed these really incredible deposits below that date to the mid, uh, the early to mid 18th century and the 17th century. And that, those layers are gonna be the focus of the rest of our, our presentation and the things that we found in those layers. Below that layer, we have this really beautiful gray, ashy layer. If you can kind of see that gray color where the first yellow arrow is. And everything in that layer, for the most part, predates the Dean occupation. So it's mostly pre-1770. Um, and it's a pretty tightly dated context, which is what you would expect if that cellar ejecta was capping the previous ground servers. You wouldn't expect other things to be getting down in there from later periods. And this layer has provided an amazing level of preservation because it's largely made up of ash and charcoal and soil. And in New England, we have a problem with our soils. They're very acidic, and that does a number on the preservation of our artifacts. It's bad for metals. It's bad for bones. Um, lots of times, our older assemblages are poorly preserved. But this ash layer has neutralized the soil and actually um, facilitated this amazing preservation that we have on this site. And we think that ash layer is probably related to um, either clearing out of fireplaces, because it's very rich with charcoal, and also household debris. There's lots of household materials in it, like animal bones and ceramics and table glass and things like that. Or perhaps um, the deconstruction or repair of a chimney, where they would have cleaned out the entire thing and taken one down. But that's a little bit up in the air for right now. 
and below that we have more 18th century materials where that second yellow arrow is. So this probably would have been the early 18th century ground surface right here. So the landscaping that I was talking about earlier, all this soil, almost 60 or 70 centimeters worth of earth, has been built up on top of these 18th century ground surface. So that just goes to show how much people have messed with the landscape, um, and particularly close to the house. at the stage a little bit, I want to talk about the people who probably lived here on this property in the early 18th century. Um, Samuel and Judith Appleton Wolcott arrived on this property in about 1678. Um, Samuel was the son of Henry Wolcott, who was one of the first settlers of Windsor, and his father purchased the property in 1661, although it doesn't seem like any of the Wolcotts lived here until much later. Samuel Wolcott got married in 1678, and that's when he and Judith arrive and set up house here on the property. Um, his father was a wealthy merchant, and it's likely that he wanted to start kind of a branch of the family business here in Wethersfield, since he already had one in Windsor. Um, they were a wealthy family, as I said. They were he was a trader. Um, they had eight children. We know they had at least one Native American indentured servant and at least one African slave. Samuel Wilcott died really young. He died in 1695. He was only 39. He left Judith here alone, uh, widowed, with eight children between the ages of one and 16. And interestingly, she never remarried, which is very unusual for the time. Um, she stayed a widow, she stayed single, but she managed to carve out a pretty good life for herself, made good marriages for all of her children, and it seems like she was probably a pretty important person in um, early 18th century Weathersfield. She occupied the property until her death in 1741, and it was her heirs that sold portions of the property to Webb and Dean, um, and led to the eventual construction of the houses that we have here today. Now, we know a lot about the Wilcots. Because of these really deep um, preserved deposits, we're getting some artifacts that you often just don't see um, in really great condition. And one of them is Delftware, which is a very fragile ceramic. Um, it came in a wide variety of, of vessel forms, uh, from like cups and pots and things like that. Um, it was often decorated with painting. Um, but already we're getting large shirts. Um, I mean, it was made from rum, water, sugar, lemon, and limes. And we can see here in one of my favorite paintings of the period, uh, sea captains carousing in Suriname. But you can actually see, you can see punch bowls actually being used. There's a guy over here. Uh, he's being served in a punch bowl. Um, the, most of the way it was served was um, you would put it on the table and then you would take it and ladle out. Um, punch into glasses, but this guy here is actually drinking it directly out of the bowl. So I don't know if the technique changed as you drank more. It's a little unclear. Um, this guy here is actually spilling it on this guy's head. Um, this guy's actually getting sick on him while he catches fire. Um, there's another guy here getting sick in the doorway. There's a couple guys dancing here. Um, and then also you can see here um, the creation of the archaeological record uh, with this broken punch bowl here. But these are very exciting si uh, finds because punch was, was very common well into the Revolutionary War and after. And um, we're not just getting this one that seems to be going together, but we actually might have several of these punch bowls. Um, 
So that's really been, been very exciting to find that. And we're just getting more and more. Every time we go out and dig, we're getting more and more, not only of, of these of ceramics, but this, this we're quite certain that will mend to these um, vessels here. Um, another really important artifact we're getting from these early to mid uh, deposits uh, is um, English white salt clay stoneware, which was, an, which was really the first mass-produced matching tablewares available. And it came in a variety of forms. Um, there were plates and cups and tankards, um, and especially um, tea sets, teacups and tea bowls. And you can see um, we're already starting to get some here that bend together. And it will look like this eventually, um, we hope. And this, this is one from Lebanon that we excavated some years ago, and then we mended that back together. But what's amazing is they're very delicate, and they're very fine, and um, you'll also notice they don't have handles. So when you're watching like period movies, you know, from the Revolution War, and they're drinking tea, and the, and the cups have handles, they're wrong. They shouldn't be doing that. Um, so that's you know very exciting. We're getting you know scratch blue and, and all different all, all different forms that it looks like a lot of these also are going to mend together. Um, just great stuff. Um, most of the ceramics at this time were manufactured in England, especially the fine tablewares. Um, even though we're still at this you know with the shirt stage, we haven't met, had time to mend anything together. We're getting already really big clues. We have some English yellow slipware that's probably part of like a posset pot, which was also communally passed around the table. Um, this is black basalt, which is similar to this um, this teapot here. It's also called Egyptian ware, and um, it was used specifically during times of mourning. Um, some of these British stonewares, we have a tankard and a handle to a jug or maybe even a chamber pot. And then this Asbury here seems quite certain to be part of a vessel like this, um, which, is very, which is very common uh, tableware, mostly the form of teapots and coffee pots. Um, we were a little surprised actually to be getting this French faience. Um, the, it did make its way onto English sites, but not in the quantities that we're finding, so it's very interesting. Um, this particular type was called faience brune because the outside is brown, and these were often used for um, cooking vessels baking, so we think some of these are probably from a cooking pot, not, not unlike this, and then this rim may be from like a, like a serving dish or a baking dish like this here, but it's, it's very beautiful stuff. Um, we're also getting a lot of uh, furniture hardware from this period, which is interesting. Some of the items are more personal, um, like these buttons over here. Um, you know, very, very nice, you know, embossed stamped buttons. Um, this is a uh, 1723 Britannia halfpenny. And here, which is a rather unusual find, it's a silver cufflink with a floral motif um, engraved on it. Uh, very nice. Um, because of the great preservation, we're getting some things that you just don't typically, typically don't find on sites, including like this bone-handled table knife. With the blade is gone. Um, and then this is actually a folding knife in the open position that was cl clearly lost um, in the 18th century. And the blade there is actually typical of what you would call a pen knife, a true pen knife, used to um, cut and work the goose quills into writing pens. Um, this here is part of the blade and a handle of just regular, like a regular utilitarian knife. So just, just incredible material we're getting. 
Okay. Um, as we continue, I'm going to keep going back in time here um, and kind of set the stage for the 17th century materials that we're going to talk about in a couple of minutes. Um, just a little refresher on Connecticut history. The first Europeans to really explore Connecticut were the Dutch. In 1614, Adrian Block sailed up the Connecticut River, which he called the Fresh River. Um, and that really laid the groundwork for future Dutch claims to land and trade in the area. Then in 1633, several key events occurred. The Dutch established a trading post at what is now Hartford, Fort Good Hope. Um, men from Plymouth Colony established an English trading post about a mile upriver at what is now Windsor. And a trader from Watertown, Massachusetts, named John Oldham, spent several months trading with the Indians and exploring along the Connecticut River. He spent the winter with the natives living among them and probably spent some time at the Wangunk village of Pyquag here in the Wethersfield area. And this all happened in 1633. In 1634, John Oldham returned after going back to Watertown and telling them what an amazing and beautiful fertile place Connecticut was and you know what great opportunities there were for trade. He returned with a group of colonists from Watertown to establish Connecticut's first permanent English settlement. Hence, um, oh, I'm sorry. Hence, Wethersfield being Connecticut's most ancient town. And soon after that, that really opened the floodgates, and Massachusetts Bay families began to start settling the Connecticut Valley. Shortly after Oldham's group came to Wethersfield, a group of colonists established a settlement at Windsor. And then in 1636, a group of families came with Thomas Hooker and established a settlement at Hartford. Now, despite the romanticized view of the earliest settlers in this uh, WPA area mural that you see here, a more accurate represent representation might be this. Um, I don't know if you can see, but you have a, a, a Puritan with his little pilgrim hat peering out through his palisade from his fortified wall. And that probably more accurately represents what it was like to be one of the first settlers in Connecticut. When the English first arrived here, um, they moved into a very tense environment. Throughout the 1620s, the Dutch and the very powerful Pequots controlled trade in Connecticut. The arrival of the English in the Connecticut River Valley really upset the balance. Um, it sparked competition and a struggle for control of trade. Some tribes viewed a possible alliance with the English as a way to throw off the mantle of Pequot control, which caused tensions. And it was a very, very tense time, which culminated for the residents of Wethersfield in the attack in 1637 on the Pequot War. Okay. John Oldham, our initial adventurer and settler, was killed by Native Americans off Block Island in 1636. And the Pequots attacked Wethersfield in April of 1637, killing nine men and women and kidnapping two girls, the Swain girls, who were later um, rescued um, in it by the Dutch, basically. Um, and they reported back that, that the Native people were interrogating them about how to make gunpowder. Um, so really, this time period was one of great uncertainty and great tension um, for the people who lived here. And that really kind of sets the stage for what we found in these earliest deposits. Uh, what we're going to talk about now 
is what we think is probably one of the most significant archaeological sites found to date in Connecticut. Um, it dates back to the very founding of the state of the Connecticut colony and to the town of Wethersfield. It is basically Connecticut's Plymouth. It's Connecticut's Jamestown. This is where it all began, and we now have tangible archaeological evidence of those earliest settlers and you know, the minutia of their daily lives, and it's really, really exciting. I'm going to talk a little bit about how we found these 17th century deposits. Um, Meg mentioned at the beginning that when we first started this project, we did phase one testing, which was shovel test pits, small holes dug across the yard. There was one pit down here in the corner next to the Dean House um, that was really intriguing, and we knew when we dug it that we were onto something different and special there. It was very, it was very deep, um, and the deepest levels contained hints of a 17th century occupation. We had some early um, clay pipe stem fragments that date to about 1620 to 1680. We had a 17th century style lead button. And then other things that were really characteristic of 17th century assemblages, a very basic um, set of ceramics, all kind of plain red wares, and also a lot of animal bone and architectural materials like hand-wrought nails. So, the lead button and the pipe stems were kind of a smoking gun. We also had a hint that it was well stratified, and by that I mean everything was where it should be in the soil. Um, the newer stuff was at the top, the oldest stuff was at the bottom. And that's really important if you want to, that's what archaeologists hope for, basically, because you don't have things all mixed together. You can really say, this stuff is what people were using in this time period. This is what people were doing in this time period without any kind of you know, muddying of the waters. So when we did our phase two work, we went back and targeted this area, trying to figure out if there was more to the 17th century deposit. And here we're going back to the same picture of the stratigraphy, because as I said before, all that amazing 18th century stuff was right smack on top of this 17th century stuff that we're going to talk about now. Um, this yellow arrow here kind of points to the, what would have been the 17th century ground surface that people would have been walking on um, almost 400 years ago. Okay, and below that is what I have labeled as subsoil, and that's the, um, the yellow-brown stuff that you might see if you dig in your yard that's below the topsoil. Okay. It's usually, it's below generally what you would consider the occupation of um, European settlers in this area. Sometimes you find older Native American materials in those soils, but they're much older. Those soils themselves are much older than European occupation uh, of New England. So we dug a couple of excavation units, and you can imagine our shock when we came down on what appeared to be an intact section of a palisade wall. This soil stain here, this dark line that you can see running diagonally through the unit, is what we think is the remains of a palisade. And you can see several very clearly defined posts to either side of it. And those, there are some that are like right up against it that were probably support posts. And then there's some other bigger ones that may be related to other structures. Um, 
we have an incredibly rich artifact assemblage from this area as well. The fantastic preservation that we got from the 18th century deposits, particularly facilitated by that ash layer, it really has carried down. And we have it for the 17th century materials as well. Um, the preservation is absolutely mind-boggling. And we are getting things that I never would have believed possible, such as little teeny tiny fish bones and pieces of eggshell, um, beautifully preserved metal materials, which are lots of times not what you get. Um, but we're going to talk about the artifacts in a few minutes. I want to continue to just set the stage a little bit with some background history of the people who we think may have lived on the site at this time period. Based on the documents that we have, um, this Webdean Stevens property, pretty much in its entirety, was occupied by Clement and Sarah Chaplin. They arrived here probably around 1636 or 1637, so about as early as you could be in Weathersfield if you weren't one of the original adventurers. Um, Clement Chaplin was a prominent man. He was well-to-do. He arrived in the New World from England in about 1635. He lived in um, Massachusetts for a while, but very quickly came to Hartford in 1636 with Hooker's group. He stayed in Hartford for just a very short time and almost immediately moved on to Weathersfield. In Weathersfield, um, he, was, he was a very prominent member of the community. He served as the ruling elder in the Weathersfield Church, which is a, an important um, lay position. Um, he was the Connecticut's colony treasurer in 1637-38, and he was deputy for the Connecticut court for Weathersfield in 1637, so a very prominent man. He was a land speculator. He bought and sold land in all the places that he lived over those very few years between 1635 and 1637. And he had a lot of business ties to John Oldham. In fact, when Oldham was killed um, by Native Americans in 1636, it was Chaplin that was put in charge of his estate. And if you look at the documents, these two were tied together with business interests. There's no doubt, because they both owed each other very large sums of money for the time. Chaplin was also kind of a difficult man. He was involved in numerous disputes, most of them about religion. Um, and you see his name in the Connecticut court records repeatedly, both as a plaintiff and a defendant. He seemed to be very quarrelsome and litigious and just kind of um, a pain in everybody's rear. Um, now, the Chaplins didn't stick around for very long. He actually returned to England in 1646, where he went and became a minister. So his religious calling was clearly very strong, and he felt very strongly about these things, which is why he was arguing with people about them all the time. So that just kind of sets the stage for who we think these deposits are probably associated with based on the documentary record. And it's Sarah Chaplin, Clement Chaplin's wife. Um, when she dies in 1661, it's her estate that Henry Wolcott purchases the land for, and that's how from, and that's how the Wolcotts get a hold of the land. I'm going to turn it over to Ross, and he's going to talk a little bit about our 17th century archaeological finds. As Sarah mentioned, we, we were lucky enough to find um, this palisade wall, um, a nice large section, but then we also found a corner to it. And when we did some more testing, we found that it extends actually quite a ways um, in the property. Um, at this time, there are basically two ways that you could 
you know, protect yourself, fortify yourself for the colonies. One would be to build a large stone manor house, like the uh, magnificent uh, Whitfield House at Guilford, which was built in 1639. But that was very expensive, and you had to have the skilled labor, and you had, you had to have the right kind of stone on hand. So what most people did is they built palisade walls, which is literally just putting upright posts, um, logs in trenches, and using that to build you know tall fences. Um, this strategy was used all the way from you know Newfoundland down to Florida. It was very it was very common because it was the most practical uh, way to to do it. Um, a palisade wall could have gone around like part of a house. Uh, it could have go, gone around an entire house, several houses, or they could have been used to build an entirely separate fortification um, like this one here. This is all based on some archaeology done in Virginia at uh, Martin's Hundred. Um, so they were actually very important and, and very common, commonly done. We were also very surprised um, to find um, window panes and lead for the windows to make these diamond sort of casement windows of this early period, because you know 1630s um, windows even in England were somewhat of a luxury still, um, and they were they were most houses actually in in Connecticut and Plymouth um, and Mass Bay, the first houses didn't even have glass windows because um, they had to be all that had to be brought in, and most people had. Um, you know, just like they would take paper and saturate the paper with oil, and that would have to function um, as windows until they could afford or, or get uh, real windows. So the fact that we were finding a lot of evidence of this in the 17th century um, deposits right there said that we were dealing with somebody who was more affluent and um, had more money and clearly had, you know, trade, you know, connections to get these things. Um, but when it comes right down to it, um, when it comes to this very first period, this sort of plantation period, houses, the architecture, we really know very little. And not just in Connecticut, which is where there are no houses, this is really the first house of this period to ever be found. Um, but in Massachusetts, there's not a lot, we just don't know a lot. And if you go to Plymouth Plantation, which is just a wonderful, fantastic place, um, the houses that they built were actually built with very little information. There's some documentary evidence, you know, by Bradford and Winslow and, and those guys, and some archaeology done by antiquarian archaeologists over the years. But um, there's really lacked so really good scientific, you know, modern methods to figure out what these what these houses actually look like, and how they were built, and um, what people actually you know did in them. So one of the models that we're using to help understand this house at the Dean Stevens, this, this early 17th century house, is uh, a house we excavated several years ago in Marshfield, Massachusetts, called the Waterman House, which was occupied um, about 1638 to 1640s when it burned down. Um, Waterman um, came from England 1636. He was sort of more of a middling sort, maybe upper middling sort, but he was very well connected. Um, he was related to uh, Governor Edward Winslow through marriage and also John Bradford, um, William Bradford's son through marriage um, as well. But with this excavation, we, which we ended up doing the entire house, um, as you can see here, this is during the excavation. We actually found a cellar and a lot of post holes, and this is what sort of the this is what the plan looks like, the archaeological plan. And if you look, 
notice it's actually kind of lopsided. Um, the house is 14 feet by 20 by 16. Um, most of it was taken up by this one single room and then you had this sort of pantry area with a cellar um, and a, just an open hearth. There's no fireplace, no brick or stone fireplace at all. It was just sitting below ground about a foot and a half. There was like a, a food storage pit in the middle of the floor. It was probably never had any floorboards or anything like that. But we were able to take all these features and also all take all the artifacts that we found and sort of plot them on, in the area we, we had excavated, we were able to really figure out with, with some pretty reasonable confidence, you know, where was exactly where was the cooking area, where was the eating area, you know, where may have been the sleeping area, where was the porch, where did they throw their garbage, we were able to determine there was two main places, and then some of these posts out here, um, we were able to to um, propose that the family garden was down there, which in many ways, this actually reflects a typical house in England of that period. Maybe more of an earlier Tudor house, um, you know, a generation before, but um, still very English. I mean, this is essentially an English house, and that is certainly what we'd be looking at here at the Webb Dean Stevens. Um, the house would have been earthfast. If you look at sort of this, this um, sort of blow-up drawing, this simply meant that they put posts in the ground, upright posts, and then they just nailed the clabbers to the outside, and as simple as that. Um, we were also, you know, with the artifacts, able to do, since we did a large area, we could do a lot of mending, including like these storage pots here. So this is sort of the, the model that we're using, and, and we're making a lot of comparisons. But also to understand, you know, what some of these materials are, and, um, you know, sort of what to plan for. Now back to the Webb Dean Stevens. Um, you know, we're getting some phenomenal um, ceramics at this time. These cobalt blue, this is it's called a tin glazed earthenware. Um, a lot of this, most of it looks like it actually may be from one vessel, uh, maybe a plate or a large plate called a charger. Um, this is a different vessel here, and I sent a picture of this to the uh, curator um, at Plymouth Plantation, and she thought it actually might be Spanish. Because um, at this time, there were many international ceramics uh, uh, that people were using, not just English. Um, some other things that we're getting here at the Webb Dean Stevens is this borderware, this English borderware, which you don't find on um, colonial sites after like 1650. Some German stoneware, and then some practical everyday sort of earthenwares, pots and bowls and baking dishes and things like that. Um, kind of a mundane article, artifact, I mean. Um, tobacco pipes, um, by the 1630s, 40s, tobacco smoking was very popular to the point where the, the colonies actually passed laws trying to restrict it. Um, you couldn't smoke if you were under 16 unless you had a doctor's uh, permission. Um, but we, these are very important because we can use these to date sites in three ways. One is through a maker's mark, which is actually an, an initials that the, pot, the, the pipe maker um, had put on the pipe. But those are not particularly common. The second way is by the shape of the bowl. So if you look at this chart here by, uh, that our friend Iverdell Hume had made, you can see from the very beginning through time that the bowls actually just get larger and larger and straighter through time when tobacco became more and more available. Um, the third method 
um, is to actually measure the, the hole inside, the, the, the bore stem, because that started off as very large and through time it became very narrow. So during like the 16, 20, 16, 50 period, it's 864 inch diameter and by 1750 it's 464. So we literally measure these with like drill bits, a drill bit set. And the reason this happens is because when these pole, when the bowls get bigger and tobacco becomes so much cheaper, um, the pipe would get hotter, which meant the stem had to get longer, which meant the tiny hole inside had to get narrower. Uh, we were very surprised to actually find a lot of clothing uh, items already, something that we did not find at that Waterman site in Marshfield, Massachusetts. Um, these iron clothing hooks, which are associated with like the hook and eyes, um, they're big. Um, that's very characteristic of this, of this first period. Uh, but we also started getting a lot of buttons, which was, again, surprising because we found one button at, that, at the Waterman site. Um, they're usually lead or a lead alloy um, or sometimes pewter. Um, and what I, we're finding is that there's actually not a lot of information about, very, about buttons of this time period. Um, and because we're getting these from a sealed context, we're actually going to be creating a typology for buttons that people, not just in the United States can use, but people in England can use. Uh, so it's very exciting. Um, this button here is not even from the site. It was excavated um, in, outside of London, and the archaeologists dated to 1630, 1650, but we've already got like four buttons like this that are being, that are being conserved right now. So again, it fits in perfectly with this time period that we're, that we're looking at. And we want to keep refining the date of this occupation, refining it and refining it and refining it. So, but it's it's very exciting to get stuff on this early clothing material. Um, this is um, actually some nice embroidery scissors, and then we're getting tons and tons of straight pins as well, and that has a lot to do with them being important for making and repairing clothing, but in fastening clothing, but it also it just uh, really bespeaks about the incredible preservation that we have here. Um, almost unprecedented. Um, coins are really great for dating sites. What the reality is, you often don't get many coins on colonial sites because there is always a coin shortage, um, which made doing just day-to-day -day business transactions often very difficult. So when we started finding these um, English farthings, we were really surprised. Uh, many of them are in really great conditions, which meant they, they saw very little circulation, which again makes this uh, indicates this is an earlier site. Um, at this point, the count is um, nine. We got nine so far. And you have to realize these are like wafer thin. They're super, super thin. Um, and you know, in a lot of circumstances, they might not even preserve at all, much less be in this, this actual mint condition. Um, we also got this lead token. Um, because of this coin shortage, they were sometimes um, merchants would actually just sort of like make their own coins. Um, and this one actually has a bust on it. You can just see the head here, and there's the hair. But they also like, somebody put two holes in it here, maybe to make it into a button or personal ornament or something like that. Um, so it was really surprising to get these. Um, we recently, um, last week, last week we actually got a James the First farthing. These are all Charles the First, 1625, 36. Now we're getting some that are even earlier. So this predates 1625. Because um, you have to also remember, it's not the, 
the coin is, is not what was valuable at this time. It was people's confidence in the metal itself. The metal is what had value. Uh, and there's this great um, passage in um, John Winthrop's uh, diary where he talks about how they have these coin shortages, and England sent them a bunch of brass coins, you know, these bad alloy coins, and they just rejected them. So to sort of make up for the, the lack of coins, they decided to officially make one musket ball worth one farthing. So musket balls actually also functioned as currency at this time because of the, of the shortages. Um, and so we basically have, I mean, we have a lot of coins, but it really only adds up to like um, two and a half pence. Um, so the question becomes, what could you actually buy in Weathersfield in like 1640 with two and a half pence? And um, doing a little research, um, you could actually take the ferry ride over the Connecticut River, um, but you did not have enough for your horse. You're, you would need more money for that. Um, you could buy a pound of venison or beef for that amount, um, a half a pound of molasses, um, a fresh cod, um, or you basically you could also have enough to suck, to get drunk. <laughs> so just just enough to do that. So, um, but yeah, just very exciting to find so many um, rare coins of this period. It's just really unheard of. I mean, it's just it's just remarkable. Thank you. Okay. Um, Moving on, in addition to coins, we have another form of period currency. Um, we have, to date, about 15, I think? 16, excuse me, 16 wampum beads, shell wampum beads that have been recovered from this assemblage right alongside these coins. Um, the wampum were shell beads that were initially manufactured by native people and quickly became a form of currency in the um, early days of the colonies, again, because of the coin shortage. And eventually, Europeans began manufacturing their own as well. Um, so for Europeans, these functioned as currency. For native people, they were currency, but they were also um, decorative items. They were, they had ceremonial uses. People would weave them into jewelry and wear them. Like you can see here, this necklace and headband. Um, and they would also be woven into belts. Um, that could be used to record events and tell stories and things like that. But in this context, it seems likely that they were most likely currency. In addition to the wampum, we also have brass and glass trade beads. I think at this point we're up to three rolled brass beads and um, numerous glass beads, which also would have been important trade items. Um, and what a lot of this speaks to is not just money and trade and things like that, but interactions with Native Americans, which would have been crucial in this time period um, for survival and also to get a hold of the goods that people needed. Um, because if you imagine coming from Massachusetts to Connecticut with basically just a load of things and a few animals and trying to establish houses and establish farms, establish herds of animals, establish your crops, they were really reliant on trade to get food and other goods that they needed early on. And a lot of that stuff didn't get here very quickly um, when it had to be imported from England. And you had the whole wilderness to cross to get it here. So these interactions would have been incredibly important at this time period. And we have pretty concrete, tangible evidence of, these, um, of this trade here at this site. Um, the last thing, the last kind of artifact that we want to talk about is food. 
um, and food procurement. And like I said, the preservation here, again, is just absolutely astounding. Um, we have terrible bone preservation in New England. Um, that's my primary area of interest, and I can tell you that it is discouraging at best um, to try and get good assemblages of animal bones from early sites and pre-contact Native American sites to really get a good analysis of what people were eating um, and where they were getting their food. But we have a fantastic assemblage here. Um, we also have a lot of artifacts related to food procurement. So we have an iron fish hook, we have musket balls and shot. So all the artifacts together are suggesting that people were hunting and fishing and trading with Native people for food. Um, but we also have evidence of people really working to establish those first farms and that you know self-sufficiency. Um, we have great assemblages. and bird bone, um, including, you know, turkeys that weren't as lucky as Kevin. Um, like I said before, we have hundreds of pieces of eggshell, um, suggesting that people were raising birds on their property and using the eggs. Again, something that almost never preserves, and we have so much of it. Um, we have also pig and cow um, and deer bones and small fur-bearing mammal bones, um, really kind of the whole package of what you would expect. So it's really interesting to see that people are, you know, they do have cows, they are eating them at this point, um, which is interesting because it would take some time to establish good herds. They definitely have pigs, um, they definitely have some birds, and there's also wild species um, indicative of hunting, and there's a lot of fish and shellfish as well. So we're going to get a fantastic picture of the 17th, the earliest 17th century diet in Connecticut. And you know, when we look at this in combination with the material that we got from the Waterman House in Massachusetts, which basically had no fauna whatsoever because it burned down, um, it had a lot of plant remains, but very little faunal remains or animal bones. Um, and this will be an excellent comparative context, too, for the Hollister site in Glastonbury, which also has a fantastic animal bone assemblage and dates to just a slightly later period. So really giving us an an amazing picture of what was going on in the 17th century in Connecticut. Um, so, closing, just want to say that there's definitely going to be more to come. We are working on our excavations. We plan to be working for the next couple of weeks. And there's another phase planned in the backyard in the fall before they break ground, for, or in the spring, excuse me, before they break ground for the building. These are some of the artifacts that we found just this past week. A, a complete 17th century pipe bowl, that James I farthing, this really beautiful brass 18th century book clasp. Um, um, and the handle of a late 18th, early, or late 17th, early 18th century spoon. So you can expect a lot more information coming out of these um, excavations. And we really are just in the earliest stages of analyzing this data and getting a handle on what we have. Everything that we've found to date is incredibly exciting, and we think it's incredibly significant for Weathersfield, for Webb Dean Stevens, and for you know understanding Connecticut's earliest history. But we have a long way to go, and there's a lot of information that we need to pull together to tell the story. Um, but we're really excited about the potential for this site and what it's going to tell us about um, these earliest settlers. So thank you very much for coming, and I hope you enjoyed our talk.
Thanks for listening. We wish to thank Sarah Sportman, Ross Harper, Meg Harper, Charles Lyle, and the Webb Dean Stevens Museum in Wethersfield. For more great stories about Connecticut history, subscribe to Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. To celebrate its 15th anniversary, Connecticut Explored readers who subscribe before December 31st, 2017, will receive six issues of Connecticut Explored for the price of four. Use coupon code NUTMEG when you subscribe at ctexplored.org shop. This episode of Grading the Nutmeg was produced and voiced by Walt Woodward. See you next time for another great Connecticut history story on Grading the Nutmeg.